This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our generous listener supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you appreciate what we do and would like to join them, go to dollamore.com slash PayPal or dollamore.com slash Patreon. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. All right, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us for this very special bonus episode of the listener-produced, listener-supported I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, that lady, indeed, she is a lady, my lovely co-host, Brittany Page. Well, I am very excited about this. What, being a lady? That's your claim to fame now, you know. <laughs> My claim to fame. What's the best thing you can think about Brittany Page? Well, she's a lady. Yes. A very classy one as well, (laughs) I've heard. Um, No, I'm excited about this bonus episode. Yeah. Because this is something I wish, first of all, that we could do more often. Talk to smart people? Yes. You get bored talking to the dullard across the table from you? Of course not. Um, (laughs) I, I read the news all day. And Mm -hmm. I follow specific Twitter accounts because I like the content that they provide. And so I'm always stumbling on these articles that are important and have notable research in them. And this happened a couple weeks ago with um, this article. Trump says jump. His supporters ask how high. New York Times. Yeah, New York Times. And in it... They discussed this paper from some political scientist at Brigham Young University. BYU. And I said, huh, this is really interesting. I'm going to email these people and see if they'll come on the show. (laughs) You're getting a glimpse inside the mind of Brittany Page. And this is something, like I said, I wish I I did more often. And I, I need to do it. So when I read an article... And it's something that fascinates me. See, I'll just spend all my time doing this, though. Well, that's great. That that means you can start uh, getting guests for the show. Yeah, well, okay. And then sometimes... <laughs> You're setting yourself up, well, you know. Well, no, because I've done that, and sometimes they don't respond. That's happened. Or sometimes they respond with two, two words, too busy. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> Maybe the most notable guest we've tried to get. Um, and they just emailed back, too busy. I don't think... <laughs> It wasn't anything else. That was it. I'll give everyone a hint. It's a he. And <laughs> I don't think I don't think he would be the most notable. I think it depends on on what circle. We can't you're say who about. it is, right? Yeah, what community. Kind of no, a yeah, move. don't say okay. who it is. Absolutely not. Um <laughs> that might give a hint. Um I <laughs> I appreciate though that Jeremy Pope, the co author of this article, um, said yes. Dr. Jeremy Pope, a professor at BYU of political science. Yeah. And this paper is all about Trump and the Republican Party. And looking at the difference between party loyalists and principled ideologues when it comes to political orientation. People who 
will move with their party regardless right. of the actual party stances. Who have political ideological malleability. Yes, that's a good. That's a great way to put it. So, well, we've talked about it on the show a lot. Or that, that we don't. I don't understand someone who claims to be a Republican standing for Republican ideological principles, which right. are in many ways very different from Democratic. Right. And then as soon as Trump drops a idiot bomb, yeah, it's it, it's it's like a gas that turned them into something else. So you have all that with the loyalists and then you have people like you. You're a good example of Thank a you. principled... Thank you. I love being a good example. A principled ideologue, Jesse D, who, <laughs> <laughs> when the Republican Party started to let you down... They changed. You transitioned away from the Republican Party. Yes. Because of your principles. That is right. And you didn't necessarily switch parties right away, but you stopped identifying really as a Republican. It was a slow process of this party is no longer matching my ideological principles, and I'm going to move away from that rather than, no, I'm going to reflexively support whatever this Republican in charge is saying. Yes. It's a good job, Jesse D. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I feel a little warm and fuzzy right now. Oh, you do? I don't know if it's because of all the coffee yeah, or or just the compliments. Well, that's the other thing I guess we could talk about is that it's we did definitely have... definitely because of a C word, though. We... Um, coffee or compliments. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we... <laughs> we did have coffee this time, so it's not going to be a lackluster performance. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway... Anyway, transitioning into what we're what we're doing here. He came on the show. We talked to him and it was a great time. So that no better segue than that, Brittany Page. Thank you for that professional broadcasting segue. Let's get into this. So Professor Jeremy Pope from BYU, Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. How are you? Thank you for having me. Well, listen, I I actually have a soft spot for BYU. When uh, I I grew up in Idaho, mm-hmm. and all of my my best friends and my my track running companions, yeah, were LDS, and I used to spend well two different Thanksgivings in Provo, going to <laughs> going to BYU. Is back when Ty Detmer was the quarterback there, and. Uh, Snuck on the field afterward and, you know, tried to pose as, as college kids, even though I was like a string bean, 125 pound, <laughs> six foot one goofball. But uh, it's pretty country down there. It is. I like Provo a lot. And I uh, have many fond memories of watching Ty Detmer. I, I grew up in Provo, at least that time when I was growing up. And so I went to those games when I was uh, in high school. Yeah, that's awesome. So what... Uh, Kind of a background question. Yeah. Your your origin story, Jeremy. What what got you into uh, political science? Hmm. I hadn't thought about my origin story, but I love the way you're phrasing that since I love comic books um, <laughs> and, and spend a lot of time talking about comic book origin stories. Um, I, I My father was a professor of economics uh, at BYU, so I grew up around the university and around academia. And when I got old enough to think about a job, I was sure I didn't want to go into academia. So I went off to become a lawyer. But before I was going to do that, I went and worked for Norm Ornstein at the American Enterprise Institute, who studies Congress and um, commentates on Congress a lot. And I realized spending time around D.C. that I did not want to ever be a lawyer. 
<laughs> and it sort of pushed me back towards academia because I have all this freedom. I get to think about what I want to. I do what I feel like doing. And, and I like undergraduates. I particularly like BYU undergraduates. I think they're among the most fun people to be around. Uh, so I went to grad school, uh, started studying American politics, and now I'm a professor. That, that is my short version of it. Nice. What a what a beautiful little journey you had. <laughs> it's not quite as interesting as Logan from X Men, but you know we'll uh, we'll take. That's it. true. <laughs> I, yeah, and I hear he's resurrected now. I need to check that out. So, so you have this new paper out, and it's called "Does Party Trump Ideology: Disentangling Party and Ideology in America?" And your co-author is Michael Barber. Just to give him a little plug too. Um, yes. Before we jump into the meat of what you did, you mentioned in the paper that Donald Trump is a useful tool for disentangling <laughs> certain issues within <laughs> the political science research. Oh, he's a useful tool, all right. Yeah, I that was bad phrasing I like on my that part. I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you say more about how he is going to be useful in kind of disentangling these issues in political science research? Sure. Um, Political scientists for a long time have wondered about the following question. Do people think about things the way they do because they have certain ideological commitments and they're just deeply conservative or liberal? And, and so because of those issue positions and their ideology, they join either the Republican or the Democratic parties and then go on to participate in politics and, and therefore look very partisan. But the source of what they are doing is really their ideology. Or, or how they feel about the issues. Right. Well, is it the case that they're just in a party? Maybe they were socialized to be there. Maybe they just grew up that way. Uh, they could be in the party for any number of reasons. And they just kind of go along with whatever the party positions are, not out of any principled commitment to ideology, but because that's just the way that they have been socialized to think about the world. And in the paper, we talk about these two different types as people that are just pure party loyalists, who just do whatever the party says, or ideologues, um, people who are deeply principled, and you know, if the party somehow switched positions, they would switch parties. Mm -hmm. I think most people aren't really either type, but that's where we're starting from, trying to figure out, well, what can we say about Americans? And and Trump is, as you said, a useful tool for that purpose. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting how you guys noted in the paper um, that he took five different positions on abortion in three days. And then you also mentioned that in one sentence, he gave two different positions about guns in the classroom. He did. Yeah. He, is, uh, he is not. I mean, I can't think of any other kind of politician that I have ever observed who gets a pass for taking so many different positions all the time. He, and he is sometimes criticized for it, but given the, the sheer scope of how wishy-washy he can be sometimes, it is still kind of surprising to me. Yeah. So can you give us an overview of how you guys went about kind of trying to address this in your research? So what was what's good about Donald Trump is we can we can truthfully tell voters, here's a position Trump took. Here's another position Trump took. And we can make the first position liberal and we can make the second position conservative. And then we can see just by giving the two different conditions to different you know, randomly selected respondents, how much does the liberal position move certain types of citizens, um, you know, to a to their own liberal position? And how much does hearing that Trump said something conservative move them in a conservative position? And there's really not any other politician where we can do that, I would say. Most other politicians, even if some of the time they flip-flop and politicians get, you know, 
uh, skewered for this all the time. Most of them are frankly quite a bit more consistent than than Trump is. Right. And the reason he's useful is we can say, you know, any number of things. There probably not a limitless number of things, but Trump takes lots of different positions, and then we can just measure how much he influences people. Right. And he does it um, in a short period of time. Some politicians might change over a period of years or something, but he. I mean, it's. You, you yeah, can think well, of a memory that you had yesterday and he he changed his mind. <laughs> that, exactly. Previous yeah. previous presidential candidates. Mitt Romney, for one, is a guy who the charge was leveled against him. I think justifiably taking different positions on gay marriage, taking different positions on uh, universal universal health care. And sure. but to a different degree. I mean, D Donald Trump, it's one thing if you in 1999 were a proponent of late term or what the Republicans call partial birth abortion. And now you've had some revelation that that's wrong. And now you mm -hmm. want to jail mothers who get abortions. Uh, <laughs> but but he but Trump flipped on those positions within hours. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> within that same interview with Chris Matthews. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, so what what was most surprising to you about what you found out? Well, I think the most surprised I wasn't surprised that Trump had an influence on people. So, I mean, I would assume that the average citizen who, you know, is probably not thinking about politics all that much, pays some attention, is probably going to hear, oh, well, the president thinks this. So I guess maybe I think that, too. I was I wasn't surprised that he had some influence, but we were surprised at how much influence he had, because on average, he ends up, you know, moving people who are, you know, nominally conservative about say 17 percent wow their, their positions change about 17 percent of the time in a liberal uh direction um and he has a comparable effect on conservatives uh, or, or he, i'm sorry he has a comparable effect um in a conservative direction i guess what i was more surprised by was that the people who he moves the most tend to be people who label themselves strong republicans or strongly conservative and if that's the group that he's moving the most, then I think what that says is I, people are not terribly ideological. People may be quite partisan. Yeah. Uh, people may have strongly held partisan identities that influence them, but they're not all that principled about about most issues. Maybe they're principled about one or two. I don't think our research should be construed to say people never have true positions. But some of the time they're really just parroting the party line. And if we tell them through Trump, well, this is the party line, then they're happy to parrot that. Well, let me ask you this, because Donald Trump wasn't the paragon of the Republican Party, and he he dominated the Republican field early on, almost the moment that he said, they're not bringing their best, they're rapists, he just took over. So what is it about what he did, and this may be, you know, diverging from the the, the, the research and maybe just asking your opinion, but... Why is it that, you know, uh, John Kasich didn't do better early on um, and Donald Trump really dominated when he wasn't identified as a Republican? He was he didn't embody Republican, quote unquote, um, ethos. It's true. I, I would offer two things, um, both of which have there's some evidence for. But I think I think people are still studying this and trying to look at the data and see what they're learning. But the first thing is he had a lot of name recognition. So even among primary voters who you think of as being certainly more engaged than your average citizen, you know, four in 10 Americans don't even vote. Um, a smaller number 
vote in primary elections. But even those voters are influenced by name recognition. So the fact that he's famous and then he had that television show and he fires people, um, that probably helped him out to, to some degree. After that, um, I think the thing that you have to take into consideration is that he spoke to a segment of the Republican Party that other people in the race just weren't speaking to. People like Ted Cruz and, uh, say, Marco Rubio, they weren't speaking to a group of people that was fairly, you know, somewhat anti-immigration, uh, feeling downtrodden. Uh, that group of people who are kind of nationalists in their outlook. I think Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump would describe them as very fine people on the other side. He. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I try not to put myself in the mind of Donald Trump, so I'm not going to try to describe how he would uh, describe right. them. But I think he was he was speaking to that group of people. And I'm not sure the other candidates were, and they divided each other's votes. So, you know, it was relatively easy for Cruz supporters and Rubio supporters to switch sides, maybe supporting the other candidate when when uh, Rubio drops out. Trump, he had this this floor of about 30 percent of the Republican primary electorate that was just, you know, they were interested in Trump and what he was selling. Maybe not on the issues completely, but but he, he spoke to that group in a way that the other candidates didn't. Yeah, I, th I think something that was interesting about this paper, of course, there were many things, but one thing that stood out to me <laughs> you, you was don't that. just a political science paper. Really... <laughs> um, I do have to do it. This is what we do, yes. though, where we are interested. It's fascinating. Yes. Um, well, I, that. I thought it was interesting how people that didn't have very much political knowledge were included in the group that behaved as partisan loyalists rather than principled mm -hmm. ideologues, along with the highly partisan people who approve of Trump and self-described conservatives. Um, I think it's useful to include a measure of political knowledge in papers like these to determine um, where those people fall to, um, people who have an opinion about politics, but don't necessarily have the knowledge to inform that opinion? Oh, I completely agree. I, I think political knowledge is one of those variables that political scientists know is important. And I, I think people in the public are start of, sort of coming to learn that it is important, but it's not, it's a little bit hard to explain to people because essentially what you end up saying is, well, there's this group of people out there who actually know a lot about politics and they're different than the rest of the grazing multitude that do not really know that much right. about <laughs> politics. Sorry, I should say one of my research interests is the American founding. And that's a quote from George Washington. He was describing the public in his day. And he used the term the grazing multitude. And I, I like that phrase and throw it into conversation occasionally. I love it. <laughs> well, listen, you, you did point out um, two different instances in graph that I'm fascinated by. And for a long time, the Republican Party has stood for certain principles, um, mm -hmm. One would be, you know, the the battle against the Soviet Union, um, you know, now Russia, which is, now, I believe, and I think many believe, well, I'm like Donald Trump now, many people are saying that, <laughs> but, you know, trying to recapture the glory of the former Soviet Union with the annexation of, of uh, Crimea and what they're doing in Ukraine and the saber rattling in, in the, in the e former Eastern Bloc countries. So there was that, that marked shift in September of 2016 mm -hmm. of Republicans, their viewpoint of Donald or of uh, Vladimir Putin being very low. And then as soon as Donald Trump st started his 
um, public relations campaign to rehab the image <laughs> of Vladimir Putin, the Republican Party just switched on a dime. Switched on a yeah. dime. And then the other yeah. one would be free trade, which has long been um, something championed by the right, and they completely just abandoned it. Yeah, they. I, I think the trade one actually is more striking to me, and it that one begins. It may begin slightly before Trump, but Trump. It's kind of coterminous with Trump, I would say. And they go from majority support for free trade down to you know maybe a third uh, of the Republicans having a positive view of free trade. It's really quite striking. It shows how the partisan positions can change quickly. Um, and I think that's just kind of a, a simple piece of evidence for what we're trying to argue in the paper, that there are ideologues out there, but most people are closer to being party loyalists than they are ideologues. And in this research, you did focus on Republicans only, but you you mentioned that you don't necessarily believe that Democrats would be immune from the same pattern of behavior if there were to be a similar <laughs> Democrat uh, running the party like Donald Trump is right now. A- another messianic figure within the Democratic Party. <laughs> a useful tool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um I don't know what kind of Democrat that would look like. I mean, I think in that sense, we're just trying to cover our bases. I think I'm suspicious of theories that say, oh, Democrats are inherently different than Republicans on all sorts of factors. I think in general, human beings just sort of are what they are. And they may be different in terms of their political positions. But I suspect that Democrats could have something similar happen to them. But the truth is they don't have anything like that now. I mean, it's Republicans that have Trump and he's the one that's producing these effects. Uh, and and he's the one that's letting us, you know, sh- show how partisan Republicans are being. This, this is all very interesting to me for many different reasons, but one being, like, it's, I understand the the grazing masses, um, the unwashed, uninitiated, uneducated, low-information type of voter that Donald Trump has captivated because of his celebrity or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then you've got pumpkin heads like Sean Hannity, who does understand politics. So I'm still trying to decide. I mean, I don't have a a positive opinion about that MOOC, but I'm still trying to decide if he has just sold out to to be a Trump kind of person. And, or is he just like, I mean, is it just, goddamn, I can't, is it just as easy for someone who is initiated to, to fall prey to this as it is the grazing masses? Well, I, I should say that our study was of average citizens. So I don't have a study of Sean Hannity. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say I don't want to study Sean Hannity. <laughs> I, I, I can offer a general point. I don't know if it applies to Sean Hannity or not. I think if you're on a partisan team, then you have a strong incentive to be loyal to that party team, especially if you know that voters out there are going to stick with their party loyalty. It would make sense for a commentator of any stripe to shift with the party. And and that may be disappointing to people who want such commentators to be highly principled people. But I think if you want to maintain your status when the party changes, you have an incentive to you know shift with the party. Yeah. I can't say that's what Sean Hannity's doing or not, but I think that there are certainly commentators who do that. It is striking to me that and now i'm just pontificating but it is striking to me that you you would think the the most established party of all would be the american party and in loyalty to country but with <laughs> with the these entanglements with russia and bad foreign actors 
I am shocked on a daily basis, and it is not subsiding, that so many Republicans are willing to seemingly sell their country down the river to a to a hostile foreign power um, because of their party loyalty. So they are choosing party over ideology. I've long said it about religion, too, that so many people, in spite of what or despite what Jesus said in the Bible, choose policies that that fly in the face of their theology. But I'm seeing it now with even patriotism and nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you. I think, I guess I'd put it in these terms. Political scientists have known for a long time, and I think political psychologists in particular have done a lot of work on this, that human beings can come up with a story for any set of positions they feel like taking. Hmm. And, and and political psychologists call this motivated reasoning. Yeah. That's kind of a technical sounding term, but basically what it boils down to is if I need to get to the outcome where I like Donald Trump, what are the stories that I'm going to tell myself to get to that particular outcome? And it's not that hard to come up with those stories. And in fairness to people who, you know, may or may not be engaging in motivated reasoning, there are reasons somebody might like Trump. They may care a lot about the Supreme Court and they feel like he's getting stuff done there. And so they want to be supportive in other ways. They may care a lot about Uh, Immigration, even though we showed that Trump had kind of a big effect on people's immigration attitudes, both in a liberal and a conservative direction, whichever way he he went. It certainly is the case. There are people who feel really strongly that we should change the immigration system. And so they may, uh, you know, feel like, well, I'm just going to I'm going to stick with Trump because he's my guy. And this is how I'm getting to this end that I feel like is so, so important. And I do. I agree with you. I think that extends outside of politics. It extends to all different walks of life from religion to just our everyday life to to everything, really. Right. So transitioning back to the paper for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm... Jesse's taking us off track. I'm that guy. Um, you, you said, quote, the results here show that self-described ideology may not truly reflect any ideological commitments, but reacts more like a social identity, at least for conservatives. And this was interesting to me because I, I just got my master's in clinical psychology, and my thesis was more social psychology, I would say, rather than clinical. And in it, I asked participants to rate themselves on their political orientation from one to seven, um, one being very conservative, seven being very liberal. Would you say that this is not a good measure because conservatives would be choosing that simply as a social identity and that doesn't necessarily categorize them in their political orientation? Well, I wouldn't say it's a bad measure. What I would say is you have to keep in mind what it's actually measuring. Mm-hmm. So it's, in a sense, it's not measuring what they actually believe, actually believe about policies that the United States or the state government should take. It's certainly a measure of how they see themselves. That's why we call it more of an identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you ask lots of different Americans, and I, I don't have the statistics of my fingerprints, but I can send you a link if you care about this um, a little bit later. Perfect. Uh, if, if you ask Americans something like, do you think we should spend more, less, or about the same? And then you start giving them a bunch of different programs. They will say that they want more spending on basically all of those programs, hmm. with the exception of foreign aid. That's the one area where Americans are like, no, we should basically spend whatever we're spending now, or we spend too much on that. By the way, we, we spend virtually nothing on foreign aid. It's like the couch change of, yes. of American <laughs> government spending. So. I'm not saying you you know have to like what level of spending we have on that. I'm just saying it's not comparable to Social Security or defense or any of those other items. 
And even those people who will say they want more spending on all of these things, they will describe themselves as conservatives. And I think that is because, and you know, somebody, frankly, you could look up his book, uh, Ellison Stimson have this nice book on how Americans, when they say they're conservative, they don't necessarily mean their policy positions because they haven't really thought those out. They haven't really figured out what they think um, about a bunch of specific policies. Right. They just kind of generally, I like the word conservative. I think that describes me. I'm a conservative in some ways. And so I'm going to go with that. Mm-hmm. But it's not terribly, it, it's not really a well thought out position. I'm going to, I'm going to be idea guy. I, <laughs> I hate idea guy. But Uh-oh. what I think you guys should do next is tackle this uh, phenomenon that happened with these Bernie voters who completely flipped ideologies and uh, on the spectrum and voted for Trump after having championed for Bernie for so many months. Yeah, I've looked at there such people do exist. They're an interesting group in my opinion. I do think there is more commonality between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump than people sometimes realize. A lot some of it's just social. I mean, after all, they're two guys from New York who are both relatively old. Uh <laughs> there are some commonalities between them. Um I don't know how many. I don't think that's an enormous group, but it's it's not a trivial group either. I would well, have to do I, 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 there's there's um, thought that it was enough to flip the election in those in those particular swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, yeah. you know, Florida. Um, it might have been, but those those three states are uh, those. You know, I think the Mich- Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Those three states are so close that basically everything flipped yeah. the election. Yeah, you know, yeah, people yeah. who people who drank a different brand of orange juice in the morning and then voted differently that could have flipped the election because it's, it it was a whisker in those states. It Bastards! Was really, really tiny. I never. <laughs> I haven't calculated in the OJ factor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, now he's out. He's loose. Uh, <laughs> the juice yeah. is loose. Oh. Juice is loose. <laughs> So I am curious how um, your paper has been received because you have been getting some pretty fantastic press, New York Times coverage. How has the paper been received? Have you been getting a lot of mean tweets? You know, I've been surprised. Um, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, to some degree, this is the most sort of public friendly paper that I think I've ever worked on, but it's been universally praised more or less. I don't think I've talked to anyone who didn't like it. There are some political scientists who have you know, the kind of inside baseball quibbles with how we did things. But everybody really seems to like the paper. I think it touches on a lot of sweet spots for political scientists, you know, an interesting question of political scientists. Political scientists tend to be more liberal on average, so they they like hitting Trump. Uh, It's generally been pretty well received by people. So Donald Trump didn't block you on Twitter like he did me last week is what you're saying. I barely use Twitter and I don't (laughs) follow Donald Trump. And I... I have a friend who wakes up every morning to see what Donald Trump tweeted. He lives on the West Coast, too. And I just find that unhealthy. I think that is not <laughs> spend the first few minutes of your day. I think you should just choose something else. No, I, I agree. And I don't know how much jokey you're being there, but I, I totally agree. It, it is not good for my, my mental health. But it, you were still having them delivered to your phone. It wasn't it wasn't just waking up in the morning and checking them. It was there was a text alert so that anytime he tweets, you have them delivered directly to your phone. Listen, it it is my job. It's my duty. It's my duty to single handedly take down the president of the United States. It's it's what I do. I have to. Yeah. So you have to (laughs) sacrifice your mental health. So, uh, Jeremy, we the the New York Times did cover this. Did they get anything wrong? 
Because oftentimes yeah. journalists, you know, they they f up the science. Um, I agree with that. <laughs> I have certainly. I have to admit, I don't say yes to every interview request. And there are some journalists who I talk to once or twice, and then I stop talking to them because I get irritated. Um, however, Tom Edsel, I think, is somebody who I really respect. And we'd spent maybe three or four days sending emails back and forth about it. And they were great because they they let us look over their graphics that they use, which are somewhat different than the graphics in the paper. Um, and just to make sure everything was accurate, I, I thought they were tremendous. And I think the article is extremely accurate. And really... I have to admit, there's probably a better summary of the social science than I would have been able to crank out on my own. Hmm. And then let me ask this finally. Do, do you think there's anything that could be learned from a... I have a little affection for, for John Kasich. Mm -hmm. And do you think there's anything that could be learned um, by a guy like John Kasich from this... from, from your paper? From your hmm. findings? Well, I did see that John Kasich is thinking about leaving the Republican Party, um, which in a sense might make him more of an ideologue because he's willing to, you know, stick by some principles instead of instead of just, you know, going with whatever the party says. Yeah, yeah. I admire anybody who does that. I think that's an I, I think everybody, frankly, should be at least a little bit of an ideologue. There should be something that you say no to your party over. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that should be true, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or a or, a, you know, Whig or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, as to what Kasich should learn, I, I don't know. I think it's probably good for all politicians, not just John Kasich, to be aware of the fact that there are a lot of people who support them that really are not thinking through the issues so much as they are simply doing whatever the, the elephant or the donkey says. And yeah. that puts a lot of responsibility on politicians. They should be thoughtful and careful about what it is that they do and say, because it has a big influence on what people believe in the direction our society is headed. So I would hope politicians would pay attention to that. Especially that advice would be well served if Donald Trump took it under advisement. Yes. Although I, I mean, I, my impression of Donald Trump is that he is, I wouldn't call him an ideologue, but I think he has one core principle, which is what is working for Donald Trump today. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't know if you've seen his comments he made today while in Puerto Rico that they are throwing a monkey rich into our budget and then went on to talk about a real tragedy, a real disaster like Katrina when because of the death toll rather than just the, the sheer uh, expanse of the devastation. He's ugh, anyway. Well, I, you know, I haven't seen anything he said this morning, but I will say that I've, I've been following the Puerto Rico thing. I don't really have a strong connection there, but I went to a conference in Puerto Rico a year ago and I had just one of the best times of my life. I loved the place and the city and everything. And I've been very sad to see just the sheer scope of devastation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. It's, it sounds horrible. Well, listen, Jeremy, thank you for taking the time being the, the, uh, not taking every interview. Yes. Thanks for joining us here. We, we appreciate feel special. It. I think I think what you found and uncovered and and maybe your 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 future research if it's similar or or tangentially related to this will be will be fascinating. Um thanks for taking the time. We appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. So maybe I should do this more often. <laughs> Book the guests. Book the guests. Yeah. Because that was fascinating. Well, I, I think oftentimes, well, I think anytime somebody has scientist in their title, political scientist, 
it it can be a little kind of a touch and go. Like, is this guy gonna be too, or this gal gonna be too, uh, too nerdy, too <laughs> too in the weeds oh. about you know okay, w- w- this? Because you know, if somebody's focusing on one topic f- for a lot of years, there are hyper intelligent about it and very aware and very informed and sometimes they can uh unless they're talking amongst their cohorts talk over your head mm-hmm. yeah i'm just a regular guy talking about politics yeah i don't have the the research uh background and all the other whistles and bells that come along with it and uh he was he's talking at my level i like that i am one of the grazing multitude Brittany page mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah, well, we we will put a link to the paper, um, which is available on Dropbox. Yes, and also the New York Times article. Yeah, so that you guys can read about it. You can go read the paper for yourselves and evaluate it yourself. If you are like me, <laughs> the grazing multitude. And actually, you know, I've read most of the paper, and it is easily consumable. It's not, I'm making jokes about being overhead and all that. Uh, it, it's not like that. It, it, it actually, there are some uh, things that you would expect, mm-hmm. and then also some some kind of holy shit moments. Yeah, and there are th- there are many things that we didn't touch on at all. So if you want more in in depth information related to this, then I would suggest reading the paper in its entirety, and then you would have all the information you need. Yeah, if you have any questions, uh, I'm sure we can get it back on. We had a good time. I think he had a good time too. Uh, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. And listen, we are listener-supported and listener-produced. The work we do here, the work also that I do on YouTube, is generously supported by you folks on Patreon. You can go to dollamore.com slash Patreon, and that'll redirect you to our Patreon page for as little as a dollar a month, you can get on board, help support the show. Um, we are moving closer and closer to our goal of three shows a week rather than our standard two. Plus, you're supporting bonus episodes like this. So we love you. We appreciate you. Your loyalty and devotion to what we're doing here, hopefully moving the conversation forward one episode at a time, is greatly appreciated. So... Until next time, for Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt It.